as you've turned to Philippians chapter 3, if you're familiar at all with this letter, you realize that we've come to the midpoint. And, or if we were to express it in the spirit of today's festivities, we find ourselves at the half. It's halftime. And at halftime, we get, if you're familiar at all with halftime in sports, halftime is when we get an analysis of how the contest is going thus far. Decisive moments are recapped and highlighted. Keys to winning it all are repeated and emphasized again. Halftime is that space where we catch our breath and grab some water. It's that interlude where the coach gives the team a pep talk. We've taken some hits. We've missed some plays. We might even be on the losing end of things. And what's needed is a little perspective, a shot in the arm, a motivational speech to fire us back up, to get our heads back in the game, to inspire us to finish well, to assure us that victory is within our reach. And this analogy is a great way of understanding what Paul is about to share with the Philippians, with us here. He's in prison, as we know, most likely awaiting a death sentence. He's already made mention. He's alluded to arguing and divisiveness within the churches at Philippi, within. And there have been clear intimations of antagonism and persecution from outsiders as well. It's halftime as Paul prepares for the crescendo of his letter. And what follows, what we're about to hear is his blunt analysis of where things stand, followed by his rallying cry to victory. Prepare to be pumped up. Get ready to find your second wind. Because for Paul, it ain't over till it's over. Let's hear from Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so, and, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have yet taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take a view of such things. And if on some point you think differently, 
That too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are certain labels Christians don't ever want to hear being used to describe them. The word fanatic is surely one of them. The shorter Oxford English Dictionary defines a fanatic as a person filled with excessive and mistaken enthusiasm. Fanaticism has a negative connotation in our culture. We associate fanatics with extremists, wackos. We characterize fanatics as overzealous, too aggressive, pushy, and judgmental. And yet, there can be little doubt that the one word to describe Paul's tone and message here is fanatical. He's intense. He's extreme. He's aggressive. He frames not only the situation in Philippi, but all of life as being a choice between two sides, us and them. Those on the Lord's side, rejoice in the Lord, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus. And then there are those on the opposing side, those who put confidence in the flesh. When Paul speaks of the flesh, this is just another way about, of talking about taking stock in ourselves, in oneself, in one's strength, it, taking stock in one's salvation by one's own abilities and talents. It's the false conviction of being a self-made person. The idea that I brought myself into this world, that I accomplished and achieved everything that I have, that all that I am, I, I am by my own brilliance, talent, and ingenuity. It is to give oneself all the credit and to deny God any of the credit. And notice for Paul, as he writes this, there is no middle ground. You're either rejoicing in the Lord, boasting in the Lord, serving the Lord, or you're rejoicing, boasting, serving yourself. And we need to pay attention here. I know for many of us, we, all, we, gotta get, we get fixated on who were the dogs, who were the mutilators of the flesh, who was Paul referring to? And we could spend a lot of time on that, but what's most important, what we often overlook, is that notice that Paul is not calling out unbelievers, Paul is not calling out unbelievers. His sights are not on those who disbelieve and reject God altogether. Who he has in his crosshairs, who he is calling out, who he's singling out is those who profess to believe, who claim to be following God and yet persist in setting their own agenda. Those who, as he puts it, refuse to be content with God's plan alone. Those who confronted with a covenant based on God's unconditional love unconditional love and grace are yet people who nonetheless insist on adding some conditions, some provisos, some clauses of their own. Now, it's important for us to pay attention to this because the question I want to raise this morning is this. Is it possible that for some of us, this might just describe our relationship with God too? I mean, step back for a second. How many of us like to think that there is a mediating position in life. How many of us profess, yes indeed, to be saved by faith, and yet if we were to step back while we profess we are saved by faith, we live by our works. We can say that that's not how we're saved, and yet that's not how we live. We say that we're saved by faith, but day to day in, day out, we live according to our works. 
We give the God, God the glory on Sunday. We give God the glory in church. But the other six days of the week, well, we know who they belong to. Us. We work hard for our money. We work hard. We earn this life that we have. Let me tell you. We deserve to have more than we do. That's the American dream. That's why we live in this country. We've got rights. As our political season comes upon us, nothing will get people to the voting box quicker than if they feel their rights are being violated. Their rights. Because after all, it's owed to us. It's owed to us. And so, if this is even our mentality, even in the smallest degree, we see that even in that small, still place, we too can become convinced that we can give partial submission. That we can meet God halfway. I mean, come on. Halfway is a big deal for me. God ought to be okay with that. Halfway, you know where I was? I'm meeting God halfway. And you know what? What's wrong with holding back a little something for ourselves? But Paul doesn't allow us any wiggle room. It's all or nothing. There are only two sides for him in the game of life. The Lord's side and everything else. Whatever is not on the Lord's side, to make it as clear as he makes it, whatever is not on the Lord's side is on the opposing side. Whatever is not of God, whatever is not given to God is not neutral. There is no neutral place. There is no Switzerland in salvation. If it's not for God, given to God, of God, it's opposed to God for Paul. If you're not for God, you're against God. And again, if you think this is too extreme, we're reading too much into Paul. Hey man, open up to Philippians chapter 3. Take a look at it again because he doesn't mince any words when he says, Beware those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For many of us, we'd be pulling Paul aside and going, Man, you're, you're getting a little intense. That's not really politically correct. That's not tolerant. You've got a lawsuit waiting to happen if you keep up with that kind of talk. But Paul continues in anticipation of our objections, our complaints that he's being a little too harsh, our protests that, come on, can't we take at least partial credit for our lives and our blessings? Can't we just take this much? Paul offers a challenge. If someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, confidence in themselves, Paul says, I have more. If you want to base your life, Paul says, if you want to base your identity, your destiny on your resume, that's what you want to do. If you want to base it on where you come from, what you think you've done, how much you think you've accomplished, Paul says, let's compare notes. And so Paul gives us his full pedigree. And it's impressive. It's hard to top, actually. Comes from the right family. Good family. Got the right connections. He's networked. He go, went to the right schools. He's a model churchgoer. He's dedicated to his work. In fact, his performance evaluations have been stellar. And he's got a clean record in the community. The Apostle Paul has good reasons to boast about his accomplishments. As his imprisonment was likely going to end with his execution, Paul could have argued that he had every right to spend his last days recalling the things he had done for God before and after he met the risen Christ. He could have whined, you know, because of who I am and what I've done, I don't deserve this. Paul could have also counted all the hardships he endured as a witness to the gospel. I mean, 
In other letters, Paul lists them out there, and he's got lots of badges of honor, lots of medals for valor, lots of grace under fire in Paul's life. But even in other letters, when Paul does list the worst of his hardships, he never concludes, I've been through enough. I don't deserve this. What about us? What about us? What do we take stock in? How do we measure our lives? He who dies with the most toys wins. Is it our stuff, our trophies, our treasures, our possessions, our power? No, 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 no. What matters most is what people think about you. We, put, we get it ingrained upon us what will be on your tombstone. What will be on your tombstone? Our reputation, that's the thing. Our titles, our promotions, our degrees, our references. What will people say about us? What do they say about us and what will they say about us? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're a little more modest than that. And you simply fall back on, you know, I'm basically a good person. I'm basically a good person. And of course the lingering question is always, good compared to who? Good compared to who? Good compared to what? Paul's point in sharing his resume, Paul's point in putting it out there, isn't to assert his superiority. That's not why Paul does this. His point in sharing his resume is that any contest can be reduced to all kinds of stats and figures. I mean, we're well practiced, aren't we, at creating all kinds of small, what we call moral victories? Right? I mean, if you watch the game at all today at halftime, I don't care if who's losing, they're going to say, yeah, but you know what? They completed more passes. The quarterback completed more passes than the other guy, and you know, they got more yards. I mean, we'll come up with all kinds of stats to say, but they, they won this part of the game. You know, and we do that in our own life. we co- lives. We come up with all kinds of small moral victories, and that's behind a, well, you know, I'm basically a good person. For Paul, though, righteousness, goodness, being right with God and with others, It's not about statistics. It's not about points, how many points you score. For Paul, it's not a righteousness, as he puts it, that comes from the law. The reality of our sin, Paul argues, the reality of our brokenness, our tainted love, our bent will means that as good as it gets for us, and yes, it gets good, but as good as it gets for us, because of the reality of sin in our lives, it is never good enough. Anything less than perfection isn't good enough. Now we may balk at this, we may settle for less in our lives, but deep down we know that this is true. We know that better is possible. We crave it, we crave the best. We search, we hunger for purity. We speak about it, we talk of wholeness, completeness. We continually wish for peace, peace in our world. We know that what is good is not good enough. We all know, despite what we may say, that you can have the best reputation in the world. You can have all the stuff you can gather, all the stuff that money can buy, but we all face that death remains the ultimate equalizer. Think about it for a second, beloved. How many tombstones do we pass not knowing who that person was? How many tombstones do we pass not knowing who that person was? How many figures from history who were famous ones in their own time have we forgotten? 
How many storage units? How many famous museums are filled with the treasures of those who once prized them as their possessions? With death, everything we have now is here today, but gone tomorrow. Paul's point in sharing his resume with us is that all attempts to save himself by his works, all attempts, his zealousness for the law, his persecution of Christians, his great knowledge, what he is basically saying is, where has it gotten me? Where has it gotten me? And that's why he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul is confessing, I had it all, but I realized I had nothing. Isn't it fascinating? Isn't it interesting that the people that often we most admire and worship end up saying the same things at the end of their lives? How many people have we lifted up, vaulted up, and said, man, I wish I was them? Man, I wish I could have their life. And how many times have we been shocked, surprised, to find those people who have the life that we're like, man, if I had that, if I was that person, who end up saying, I'm lonely. I'm empty. It's meaningless. It's nothing. Paul joins their chorus and says, apart from Christ, I have it all, but I have nothing. Paul considers, in fact, the, the things of his former life, the things that once charmed him, that amused him, that pr he prided himself on. He considers these things that once filled him up, that built him up to be garbage, refuse. And you've probably heard in too many a Bible study and too many a sermon, but that's putting it delicately. What he's saying here is it's basically waste, dung. Beloved, what Paul wants us to understand is that it's not about how we keep score. Our point system, our rules and standards, our little moral successes don't matter. The only thing that matters at the end of the game is the scoreboard, baby. The scoreboard. It's about who is victorious for Paul. Who can master this problem of sin? Who can conquer the enemy of death? For Paul, it's not about the points or the statistics. It's about who is victorious and the one who is victorious is Christ. And therefore, for Paul, righteousness is about a relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says a second time, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road changed his life. If we had any doubts, <laughs> here it is. Once Jesus Christ appeared to Paul, it's obvious that Jesus became the singular pursuit of his life. As he elaborates here, so focused on Jesus was he that he was willing to lose, to give up everything else so that he might gain Christ and be found in him. Paul's goal became Knowing and living for Jesus. The entire focus of his life became fixated on that relationship. And that's why he says, in this moment of ultimate fanaticism, I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. These are the words of a man possessed. These are the words of a man who is on fire. These are the words of a fanatic. So I ask you, going back to our definition, as we hear Paul today, is Paul overly excessive? Is Paul mistakenly enthused for Christ? Or beloved, are you and I missing the experience of Christ that Paul had? 
Interestingly, the shorter Oxford English Dictionary actually has another definition for fanatic. And that definition goes like this. A fanatic is a person who acts or speaks in a way that seems as if he or she is possessed by a god. Hmm. Huh. In living for Jesus, Paul seeks to be with Christ, to be in Christ, to be one with Jesus. His desire is that his thoughts, his feelings, his will, his actions would not be his own but would be formed, shaped, and directed by Jesus. His singular aim is to learn from, be guided by, to receive his identity, to evaluate the progress of his own life by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's goal, his only goal, is to become, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit into a Christ-like person. Now again, you still may be, uh, that's, wow, Paul, thumbs up, man. Go get them. We may balk at Paul's intensity. We may step back and say, way to go, Paul. That's Paul. That's not me. That's not me. But the truth is, and boy, what a day to talk about this. If we're really honest about it, we're all fanatics when you come down to it. We're all fanatics. We may not like the term fanatic. We may dislike it. But none of us have a problem if we take that term in its shortened form. Fan. We're all fans of something. We're all fans of someone. Each one of us has at least one person, one thing in our lives that we have a strong enough interest in, such a passion about that we are willing to make radical changes in our lifestyle because of it. It could be a sport. It could be a hobby. It could be a team. It could be a celebrity. It could be a TV show. It might be a book series. It might be a form of art, a style of music, a charity, a political cause. It could even be one of our kids their talents, their hopes, their dreams. But we're all fans of something or someone. And with that focal object, that activity or person, we, when we are a fan, are motivated to demonstrate our excitement through external behaviors that can only be described as radical. Radical. When you're a fan, you'll drive great distances to get there. You'll wait in long lines. You'll reschedule appointments. Heck, you'll clear your calendar if you're a fan. You'll pay any price for tickets, as well as for memorabilia, a baseball, a guitar pick, a first edition, a prop, a t-shirt. We'll read magazines and blogs, even though we tell people I'm not much of a reader. We'll attend conventions and talk for hours with complete strangers who share the same passion, even though we're not much of a talker. Get us in the same room with somebody who has the same passion we have, and suddenly the words just start coming. We'll paint our faces, <laughs> our chests. We will scream and cheer at a level that would surprise those closest to us. But when we get to church, we fall back on some bogus garbage that we're Midwestern Lutherans, and we don't know how to do that. <laughs> we just don't worship that way, Pastor Chris. Really? Tell me your team. Let me see you watch a game. I guarantee you, you're not a Midwestern Lutheran then. We are all fans of something or someone. And we may not choose to call it that, but we all have an ultimate goal or pursuit. We may not even consciously think much about it, but it's still there. We express it. Some people, for example, live for leisure. Their minds are constantly on what they will do when they don't have anything else that they have to do. 
And they often begrudge their work and complain about it because for them, that's not their real life. They act and think as if their playtime is what they've earned. And it's that's what's most important for them. And for others of us, we're the exact opposite. Some of us live for our jobs. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Some of us live for our jobs. Their work, their title, their accomplishments, their accolades are the most important thing because that's the only thing that gives them meaning. Beloved, step back for a second. Judging by your, you're, it's only you, no one else, this isn't a small group conversation, just you right now. Judging by your thoughts, your commitments, your actions, what is your highest goal? What do you pursue to a higher degree than anything else in your life? C.S. Lewis once wrote an essay called, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? And he wrote this, Christ says to us, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your, your work. I want you. No half measures are any good. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. C.S. Lewis is on something there, because if we really step back, the truth of the matter is, is Jesus Christ was the original fanatic. He, as Paul wrote earlier in this letter, he who forsook his own glory, all of his glory, who gave up everything for the sake of saving the world, he, the one who humbled himself to take the form of a servant for this one goal of saving the world, even to the point of death on a cross, he is the one who calls Paul, who calls you and me to take up our cross daily, deny ourselves and follow him, to speak and live as if we were possessed by the God who is our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the original fanatic. All Paul is doing is following the leader. If he's a fanatic, if Paul were here and we were to say, you're a fanatic, Paul, Paul would reply, if I'm a fanatic, it's because Christ was one first. Because he was a fanatic for me. For us. And so Paul doesn't have any shame, any guilt, any hesitation in beckoning us to follow him and being a fan of Jesus, a real fan not a Fairweather fan. You know what Fairweather fans are, right? It's all you guys who don't care about the Giants and the Patriots, but suddenly now it's like the world itself will end if they don't win for you. <laughs> a Fairweather fan is a fan who's only committed when our team is winning. You know, when the team's winning, go team. But when our team is losing, we... Oh, no, no, I don't cheer for the Vikings. No, no, I don't know. No. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. Paul doesn't want us to be a Fairweather fan. Paul, notice, doesn't say, Paul doesn't say he wants to know Jesus Christ so that he'll get good things in this life, such as health and wealth. Paul wants to follow Christ and to be with him, and he understands that to be with Jesus is to be with him in all parts of his life, death, and resurrection. Again, it's all in. He wants all of Christ. He wants to seek Christ, not only the power of his resurrection, which we all crave, but Paul goes further and says, I want the fellowship of his sufferings. That's not a Fairweather fan. I want the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul understands, and if we're a real fan of Jesus, we need to understand, change is hard. Following Christ will change your life, and it will be hard, because commitment costs something. Sacrifice isn't easy. Dying to yourself is never fun. But victory is assured. 
Victory is assured. That's why Paul says, I forget what's behind. I forget that. So many of us who are trapped in our past, I forget that, and I'm straining toward what is ahead because I know victory is assured. I press on. Don't be a Fairweather fan if you're a fan of Jesus, Paul writes. But don't be a, fan, a bandwagon fan either. And there's a difference. You know what bandwagon fans are, right? They become a fan at the last possible moment. They've never cheered for anybody. But all of a sudden, the winning, that winning team, oh, that's the team I cheer for. You have no team. I, the team I cheer for is the team that's winning. <laughs> I cheer for the winning team. That's a bandwagon fan. And that's why Paul says, no, no, don't be a bandwagon fan. Don't just jump on the train at the last minute. Paul says, no, all of us who are mature, notice that word, all of us who are mature should take a view of such things. Paul says, only let us live up to what we've already attained. Don't jump on the bandwagon. If you're mature, live into it now. Live up to what we've attained now. And yet so many of us in this life and following Christ are willing now to just simply get by. We're willing to simply muddle through. And then when something changes, when we're near that point of where we're going to meet our maker, then all of a sudden, boy, woo, we're on the winning team. Go Jesus. Bring me home. And amen to that. But Paul says a real fan doesn't jump on at the bandwagon. Instead, Paul calls us to join him in being relentless. That's a real fan, relentless. Like Paul, to train and exercise the faith and grace we have been given. To run the race from start to finish with everything we have, with all that we are. As Paul writes it, to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also lay hold of us. Even though he surely already had a measure of the presence and power of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's evident through his letters. Isn't it awesome that even though we can sense from Paul his awareness of the presence and power of Christ in his life, Paul, every time that he writes, is never satisfied. He is always seeking more of Christ. Again, beloved, what about us? Are we that committed? Are we ready to get fanatical for Jesus? You know, back in the day, in the 70s, the term was Jesus freak. Are we ready to get fanatical for Jesus? Or are some of us like, man, I am glad those Jesus freak days are over. How appropriate for us to ask this question on a weekend when a record 150 million people in 232 countries will be watching the Super Bowl. Hear that again. 150 million people in 232 countries will be watching a single sporting event. I want to encourage you. Now I'm, you're going to hate me because I'm going to, it's, hopefully I'm going to get in your head and this is going to stick with you later on today. As you're, as you're watching all the hype today, maybe none of you are going to watch it, but you might flip on and hear like the highlights. As you're taking in all the hype, the face painting, the tailgating, the paraphernalia, the emotions that are just going to surround this Sunday, I want you to realize that clearly for some of us, being fanatical, being a fan, isn't always a negative character trait. You don't have to be crazy. You don't have to be judgmental or obnoxious to be a fanatic for Jesus. Being fanatical for Jesus means living enthusiastically. It means living positively. It means living pointedly for all the things that Christ represents. It means you can't just be a spectator. You have to be all in. It means Truly being a fanatic in the best spirit of the word, the spirit that Paul is invoking. If you're fanatical, you have to be all in. You can't just be fanatical about the message of the cross without being fanatical about loving your neighbor. 
You can't be fanatical about banging people over the head with how the Bible is true without being fanatical about living out the truths of the Bible. Mercy, grace, forgiveness, and love, especially towards those in need, those on the margins, those who have been rejected and forgotten by others. You can't be fanatical one way and not the other. You can't be fanatical about the gifts of the Spirit without being fanatical about cultivating and sharing the same Spirit's fruit by humbly serving others. You can't be fanatical about being a part of the church without being fanatical about making room, extending hospitality, sharing the gospel with those who aren't here yet. Being fanatical for Christ, beloved, means being faithful to Christ. It is to subordinate every other desire I have to my desire to follow him wherever he leads me. It is to be willing to sacrifice my life and all the stuff that I want for myself so that his desires become my desires. His will becomes my will. It is to look to, to seek after, and by the power of the Spirit to become like Jesus. It is to say not only with my lips, but also with my life, that for me to live is Jesus Christ. Because when you get right down to it, when it comes to being fanatical for Christ, maybe the problem isn't that we're too committed to the gospel. Maybe the problem is, is that we aren't committed to it. We're not occupying it enough. When it comes to Jesus, Paul is a fan. Are we? Are we fanatical for Christ? I leave you with this. If we were to theoretically accept in our heads, wherever you are in the midst of this message this morning, if you, wherever you are, were to just go with me, and theoretically, if we were to accept in our heads and our hearts that we should make our relationship with Jesus the ultimate goal of our lives, where would that conviction lead us? Where would that conviction lead us? Let's pray. Jesus, help us, help me to be increasingly committed to you, to know you, to pursue you by your spirit, to become like you in fanatically loving, forgiving, and serving the people you bring into my life. I want to, we want to share in your sufferings, to lose everything if need be so that we might experience the power of your resurrection. Lord, that's easy to say, but it takes a lifetime to live. By your grace alone, through your faith alone, help us to keep humbly running the race, to keep our eyes on you, and to finish well. We ask this in the name of the original fanatic, your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.